Good morning. Man, it is good to be back in the pulpit after a, my uh, longest break ever here. I don't think I've been back here since the July 4th weekend. So, man, thank you to all of the uh, folks that were involved with our preaching cohort this summer. Gave me a pretty historic break, but I am really excited to be back digging into a new sermon series this morning. And uh, yeah, so happy to welcome uh, college students that are back in the house again and people from the neighborhood and community. Um, uh, it's exciting to be gathered together in God's house this morning, uh, worshiping Him. And we're starting a new series, um, The Minor Prophets, God's Passion for Justice and mercy in the public square. And, and I want to say a few things about this series. I wrote a very extensive background packet that I shared on Slack. If you're looking for the full background of the series, um, it's all out there for you to dig into. But let me just say a few things here about this series, just to kind of cue things up this morning here. Uh, first thing I say is there's really nothing minor about the minor prophets other than their length. Okay? They pack a major punch and cover all the big themes of the biblical prophets. So they may be short in form, but they are very potent. And so, so, so the heat that they're bringing, I think you're going to feel it as we go through this uh, series. They are perhaps the most neglected books in the Bible for a couple reasons. You know, maybe you've never heard a sermon series on Obadiah or Nahum or Habakkuk, some of these great uh, books, because they have uh, pretty wildly different cultural context. You know, we don't think about invasions of plagues of plagues. You know, we think of locusts. We don't think of fig trees and vines. Uh, those are not the kind of things that are part of our urban lives. And so there's a major difference between the culture of the ancient Near East and the culture we have here. There's a really strong message of judgment in the minor prophets. And a lot of people aren't really looking for like, hey, I just want to come to church on Sunday and get some major judgment <laughs> themes of God's justice coming at me. But that's what you get in the minor prophets. And also they're pretty notoriously difficult to interpret. So we're going to have to do some work opening up our Bibles. You're, you're going to need your Bible for this series. You're going to need to be digging into it. You're going to need to be reading through it because we're going to have to do some work to understand what the prophets are tr trying to communicate to us uh, today. But, if we're, but as we do that work, as we dig in, I think you're going to find um, some absolute treasures in these books. And with some careful study, we'll see just how relevant they are to our lives uh, today. So over the next 12 weeks, we are going to cover all 12 minor prophets, one prophet a Sunday. So strap on your seatbelt. We're going to be we're going to be cruising through these prophets. And I'd encourage you, if you get the chance to read through the prophets each week as you're preparing, we're going to be covering kind of the 30,000 foot level. Uh, but if you want to get into the text for yourself, man, what an incredible opportunity to dig in and read it for yourself. And what we're going to see as we approach this series is that God takes justice in the public square very seriously, right? God is not just like, hey, whatever, do whatever you want, do whatever you please. Justice is a massive theme in the minor prophets, so big, right, that just judgment is um, inevitable. It is imminent. It is coming because of the wrongs that we do to society, the way we neglect the poor, uh, the way we perpetuate racial or ethnic injustice, the way we neglect widows and orphans, all of those things. God is not happy when we neglect the most vulnerable people in the community, and, and we get some real fire from the Lord. Amos says the Lord roars his message out to 
his people for the ways that we neglect justice and some of the weightier issues. But we're also going to see that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And it's this tension between God's justice and God's mercy that drives the plot line of the minor prophets, and in many ways, the whole Old Testament, right? How can God be absolutely justice, just and absolutely the merciful God that he is? And finally, the prophet's confidence and courage comes from the fact that they are God's messengers delivering God's word. Right in their own time, there were enormous pressures for God's message to be co-opted by the current political agendas of that time. And so the kings and the nobles were saying, prophesy a message for us that would be favorable, that would be encouraging. And I think today, those same challenges come at us, right? We have to be careful not to let God's message be co-opted by political talking points from the right or the left. It's very easy to get into the pulpit today and really thump the pulpit really hard and think, man, I'm being prophetic. I'm really, I'm really bringing the word and we're really just giving recycled talking points from Fox News or CNN or something like that. So it's essential that we take our messaging from Scripture, from the text, that we give careful attention to the words of God and distinguish them from some of the words that are heading out out there on talk radio and on cable news. So this morning we are starting with Jonah, far and away the most familiar minor prophet. Uh, And he's unique because, you know, we get a story here with Jonah. We don't just get these prophetic oracles of judgment, which we'll see next week. We get a wonderful story about the prophet himself. And who could forget this famous runaway prophet? The prophet that God tells to go bring a message, and he runs the opposite direction, right? Every Sunday school student knows about Jonah and his famous whale. And even if you're not a Christian or aren't from that background, you're probably familiar with, in some way, the Jonah story. It's one of the great stories in the Bible, but it's no idle children's tale. Uh, what I want you to see this morning, my, my big idea for this morning, this is the, this is the grown-up version uh, of this story here. Jonah is a hard-hitting indictment of God's people's hardness of heart and attract on the sovereignty of God in salvation. Jonah is a hard-hitting indictment of God's people's hardness of heart and attract on the sovereignty of God in salvation. I hope this familiar story comes home in some new and fresh ways for you. This morning, if you are following along here, I want to give you the outline for this morning. I want to look at three things. I want you to see the scandal of Jonah's hard heart. It is scandalous the way this man responds to God and his mercy. I want to see the scandal of outsiders' open hearts. It's remarkable in this story how open the people that shouldn't be open to the God of Israel are. And finally, and most importantly, we're going to see the scandal of God's heart for the nations, God's mercy as it is on display in this book. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that we would share God's heart for the people around us. So let's pray as we dive into this new sermon series, asking God to bless it, asking God to speak to us and to move us out to be the kind of people that love justice and love mercy, just like he does. And so, Father, would you expose this morning our hard hearts? Uh, Would you start with mine this morning, Father? Would you challenge our apathy and the aversion to the people that you've put in our lives? Would you give us Uh, your eyes to see just how many people are open to spiritual things. Would you give us your heart 
for our neighbors, for our coworkers, for our fellow students, and for the nations. And most of all, would you help us see your sovereignty and salvation, that no one is too far gone or beyond your reach? Would you give us great confidence in God's power to save, and would you get all the glory God, as outsiders are drawn to the God of Israel, as outsiders are becoming insiders, as people outside the family are being joined to your family, God, would you get all the glory? And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting this morning here with the scandal of Jonah's hardness of heart. We already read in the scripture reading, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Um, the most striking thing about this prophet is his refusal to faithfully deliver God's message. Prophets were entrusted with God's word to say what God said, to go where God told them. They're kind of like the press secretary we have for a modern president. They were authorized to stand up and give the official words of God before God's people. So when you have a prophet who refuses to give the word of the Lord, uh, this man is a walking contradiction, right? This is like a fireman refusing to go put out a fire, a baker refusing to bake bread, like a builder refusing to go build buildings, like a prophet who is running away from God's call on his life is a contradiction in terms. And he didn't simply go, he went the opposite direction. I think I have a little bit of a slide that just helps you visually capture Jonah's journey. So he, you know, God calls him to go 550 miles to Nineveh. He books a ship 2,500 miles the opposite direction. So he doesn't just go. I mean, he goes in style. And Tarshish was on the very fringe of the ancient world. Like it was a place of full of exotic things. This is where they ship gold and spices and exotic animals. And so Jonah's like, I'm willing to go as long as you send me somewhere cool and tropical and where I can get a beach and, you know, a nice drink maybe with a you know, straw in it or something. That, that's what Jonah is thinking. He's like, Nineveh, are you kidding me? Uh, Nineveh are God's enemies. And twice in these three verses, don't miss this if you were following along, this is you know, if the story isn't strange enough, uh, twice in these three verses, we learn that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, every good Israelite would know, right, that that is absolutely impossible. How can you flee from the presence of the Lord? That's ridiculous, right? Psalm 139, 7 through 10, every devout Israelite would know this psalm by heart. They would have had it memorized uh, where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I bake my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So here's Jonah heading out onto the sea, trying to escape the presence of the Lord which is impossible. If he went down to Hades, if he went down to death, even God would be there. If he went uh, to the heights, I mean, everywhere, God is present. So, so what's going to happen to this prophet who refuses to deliver God's message and who thinks he can escape God's 
presence, right? We know this isn't going to go well for him, right? We kind of know where this story is going already, right? This is, this is not going to work out well. We aren't given Jonah's rationale just yet. We're, we're going to learn uh, later in the book why he decided to go the opposite direction, but we do know a few things. And this is probably helpful for us as an audience to understand because you may not be as familiar with the Assyrian Empire. You may not know who they are, what they're all about. Um, one of the uh, commentaries I was reading this week um, said this about King Asher Nasserapal too. He reigned about 100 years before Jonah, and he boasts of skinning his victims erecting them on stakes and draping their skins over the city walls. How's that for a really nice group of people, right? And not only did they do those sorts of things, not only they chop off hands, feet, captives, they actually had these stone plates that they would actually engrave all this torture on. And we have those plates today. You can go to ancient Near Eastern museums and see some of these incre- I mean, incredible for how just barbarous and like horrible are. They didn't just kill their enemies, they terrorized them. That was how the Assyrians uh, dealt with their enemies, right? They had uh, not only a vast military power, but they used fear and they used terrorism to intimidate their victims. Assyria had already threatened Israel's national security. They had made them pay tribute. But the Assyrian Empire weakened during Jonah's time, and Israel was prospering economically in this power vacuum. And so Jonah is like, man, those guys are finally, you know, stopping, you know, their incredible empire that was just gobbling up the nations has finally been stopped in its tracks. And Jonah wants nothing with this mission that God has for him. And while Jonah's response to God's call is particularly surprising from a prophet who should know better, right? He's, he's God's prophet. This is what prophets do. They're there to declare God's word. But I do think there's a word for us here this morning as well, because I know from my own experience, right, uh, just wanting to run from the call of God is something we all struggle with. I know as a, a young guy growing up on a camp, my dad was a camp director. There are missionaries in my family. There are pastors. And I was like, man, I am going the opposite direction. God, I don't want to be a pastor. I want to be like one of those people that's not in ministry, that makes good money, drives a nice car. you know. And I can maybe support all those ministry people and those nice pastors and people that do ministry together. And so, you know, not only Jonah, but I think all of us struggle to some degree. You may be here this morning and you're like, God, why am I in the job that I'm in, this dead-end job this morning? I hate it. Why did you put me here? Why am I in this city of Grand Rapids? What is going on in my life? Why am I in this position in college? Why did you place me with this roommate who is already driving me nuts a couple weeks into school? I don't know what it is for you, right? But it's easy for us to run from the call of God. And we can look at this prophet Jonah and go, oh man, Jonah, what a crazy guy. I mean, running from the call, Lord. But think of how many assignments where God puts us in life, and we just think, man, I don't want any part of that, God. I don't know why you have me here. I don't know what you're doing, but I don't want any part of it. I don't know if you can relate to that and if you could resonate with that. Maybe there are parts in your life. But I think we need to pause and consider the message Jonah has for us. We're maybe a little bit more like Jonah than we might like to think when it comes to running from the presence of the Lord, running from the call of the Lord that God has on our lives. So what happens to our runaway prophet? All right, the God whose presence he is trying to flee is still, of course, very present, <laughs> and he sends a great storm to intercept him and get him back on course. The storm sets up a delightfully ironic conversation. I wish we could go through it line by line because it is wonderful to read. 
Um, the sailors wake Jonah up. They cast lots to see responsible. And Jonah is chosen. They have questions, right? They're like, like, like what is going on here, man? In verse 8, they say, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you from? And Jonah, of course, very proudly states, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. What a wonderfully pious statement, right? All very true. But what's very interesting is that only Jonah seems to get the absurdity of what he's saying. Right here he is, God's prophet, proudly declaring his work for the God who made the land and the sea, trying to escape from the Lord who made the land and the sea. Only Jonah seems to miss the absurdity of what he's saying. His truths are right doctrinally, theologically, right? He's making very coherent, rational points, but his whole life is, as we said, a walking contradiction to what he's saying. It takes being thrown overboard, sinking to the bottom of the sea, and almost drowning for Jonah to gain any perspective, like any idea whatsoever. We see this in his prayer in Jonah 2, 1 through 9. I want to read it for you because this is where Jonah, God gets his attention clearly in the middle of this scene. Then Jonah, we see this in Jonah 2, 1, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, right? Finally, God's got his attention. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried to you and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came before you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now that is, I think, one of the banner verses in our text. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, Jonah was not having any of God's mission of mercy, but God was not having any of Jonah's resistance, (laughs) threw him into the sea until finally he was willing to tap out and finally acknowledge that God was sovereign to save whoever he wanted, to do whatever he wanted, and Jonah was going to go to Nineveh, whether he liked it or not. And so Jonah is finally in a position where he's willing to actually submit to God and do what God told him to do. And as sometimes, I think in our lives, it takes a really traumatic situation like that for God to get our attention. I don't know what it is. Maybe you've never been cast to the bottom of the sea and had you know, seaweed you know, hanging around your head. <laughs> maybe you didn't quite go down to the bars of death. But maybe God has done some really crazy things in your life, right? Maybe it was a massive move across country that just totally rocked your world and your life. Maybe a massive breakup where you're just like, what just happened? Your whole life is in devastation. Uh, Maybe having kids for you, having twins. (laughs) You're like, oh my gosh, your whole world just got turned upside down. Maybe a major medical situation in your family or your life. And like, God got your attention. You just recognize, man, God, you can do whatever you want. You are sovereign 
to save. I don't know if you've been there before, but those can be very painful uh, and very holy moments, right? Where God gets our attention, where God humbles us, where we find ourselves genuinely desperate for him. And I just want to encourage you to not waste that moment. If you're there this morning, if you're in that place, don't run from God, run to him. God uses these disorienting situations to try and get our attention to redirect us and move us uh, towards him. One of my favorite authors, uh, C.S. Lewis, who uh, many of you know uh, I love very much, says it this way in his book, uh, The Problem of Pain, and I think it's so helpful. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, God uses these situations. He's using it in the life of Jonah to get his attention. He's like, Jonah, you aren't getting the message. And so it takes going to the bottom of the sea for Jonah to finally have God's attention, to finally acknowledge that salvation belongs to the Lord, and he will save whoever he wants to save. These crises of faith are an opportunity to press in towards God and not to run from him. One would think, right, that after Jonah gets thrown into the sea and uh, miraculously and dramatically rescued by this gigantic fish that we'd be well on our way to a happy ending. Wouldn't that be great? We could go, man, all Jonah needed was a little bit of a wake-up call, and you know, he just needed to be rescued, and then, you know, we could get this guy back on his merry way, and we can all go away with a happy ending to our story of Jonah, because we all like a happy ending, right? At least I do. And in our stories, we like to put a neat bow on it, but Jonah, he's a stubborn guy. I don't know if any of you relate, any hard-headed, hard-hearted people, right, that need a little bit more work from God. Uh, Jonah does go to Nineveh, and he does pronounce the message God tells him to in about as abrupt of a way as he can. It's just simply five words in Hebrew, actually. It's like, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. It will be destroyed. And, you know, he seems to relish the abruptness of just saying this word and just walking around Nineveh, just going, God's going to blow you guys all up. End of story. And, you know, it's like he's phoning it in here. He's like, God, you know, I'm just going to do what God said, the minimum of what God said. Um, and, you know, that's it. I mean, who could respond to a message that quickly? Right? This is the message that Jonah has here in uh, verse, and this is a great, this is verse, um, where does he, where is he? Okay, this is verse two of chapter three. Just so you're following along here, I don't lose the story. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, the message I tell you. So Jonah rose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was a great city, uh, three days journey in breath, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, it called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And shockingly, Nineveh, the proud and brutal Assyrians, they actually repent, right? They, they repent in dust and ashes. They repent extravagantly. They go over and beyond. Even their animals were it's crazy. And then Jonah goes outside the city, and instead of going, wow, God is such a merciful God, what a wonderful guy, man. The wonder of his mercy. We just sung about the, the glory of God's mercy. It's your mercy that God... <laughs> no, Jonah goes outside the city and rages. He is so angry at God. Uh, I just want to pick up the story here in verse 4, 1 through 3. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish, 2,500 miles the opposite direction, because I know that you are a gracious God and merciful 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. How's that from God's prophet? (laughs) I would rather die than have my enemies receive God's mercy. That is what Jonah is saying, uh, and Jonah is adamant about it, and that is where we leave him at the end of the book. His last words in verse 9 are these, but God said to Jonah, and this is God kind of searching his heart, do you do well to be angry at the point? He said, yes, I do well enough to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah drops the mic and he's out. That's the end of the book, right? (laughs) I'm angry and that's the end um, of the book. And we leave this angry prophet stewing on the outskirts of Nineveh, wishing that God would finally drop the hammer on this evil nation. And I think it'd be easy again for us to kind of dismiss Jonah and just say, oh yeah, that's this this rebel prophet, this rogue prophet. I could have nothing to do with us, right? I mean, we're not at all like Jonah in terms of wanting God's uh, justice to fall on our enemies. Uh, But the book of Jonah is here to poke us and prod us and challenge our own prejudices, the ways maybe that we are hard-hearted towards the people around us. And so we've got to wrestle with this text. What are the people in our lives maybe that we despise? What are the people we're hard-hearted to? What are the people we just think there is no hope for in our lives? As a church, we are sitting right between you know, the most affluent zip code in Grand Rapids and the least affluent zip code in Grand Rapids. And Sebastian and I were talking about this week. This week. We look at the rich people living over Grand Rapids who are in these you know, $12 million homes, and we just think, man, like those people got no problems, right? I mean, they have so much money, so much wealth, so much affluence, they wouldn't be open to the gospel. And yet so many uh, with all their wealth, material possessions, are living lives of quiet desperation, right? And as we're wrestling through that, it's easy for us to go, man, those rich people, they don't have any problems. Like, I'm like, man, I'm a little hard-hearted towards those rich, you know, East Grand, if you're from East Grand Rapids, no offense, but like, I'm a little like, man, these rich people, like, they're not going to be open to the gospel, right? Uh, but we also can look over at a Boston Square neighborhood and look at the poverty in that neighborhood, and we go, man, those people are materially you know, materially poor. How do we meet their needs? There's homelessness, right? There's, there's you know, redlining. You know, as people struggle, their houses are falling apart. They don't have good jobs. Like, there's not a lot of opportunity. They're just stuck in cycles of poverty. And, you know, as, you know, middle-class people, we're just kind of like, we don't even know what to do with that. It's so overwhelming. How do we even deal with those kind of people, right? Maybe it's an age demographic, right? We're, we're, a, we're a young church. You know, I always tell at the college fair, I'm like, yeah, I'm like the old guy at the church, you know, everybody else is younger than me, there are maybe two or three other people that are older than me, but, but like, you know, it's easy to think, yeah, the problem is those old people, man, those boomers out there, like, you know, they're so out of touch with the issues of the time, they're, they're you know, they're racist, they're like, they have all these backwards views on all the issues, and it could be very easy for us as a young church to go, yeah, if we could just get rid of all those old boomers, you know, they'd just get out of the way and let us young millennials and Gen Z people lead the way, like, we have it all figured out. Maybe, maybe you're on the opposite side. There are a lot of churches in Grand Rapids full of, uh, full of not just boomers, but even older generations that are like, man, the problem is this new generation, these young whippersnappers that are, that, you know, are just crazy. And, and yet we, we, we can, uh, yeah, we can be prejudiced. Maybe a little more poking, a little more finely. We look at the gay community in Grand Rapids and we go, man, that, that community is like, that's just a step too far for me. I don't think God wants to reach into that community and do anything. Uh, maybe on the other side, the, the MAGA community, the, the conservative folks, the nationalists, the, the folks 
folks that are on that other side, we're like, man, God doesn't know those country people. We live in the city. We're sophisticated here. You know, you know, we, we don't we don't drive around in pickup trucks and have you know gun racks on our cars. Like, and we get discriminated. We go, man, that's a different world out there. God doesn't want to reach those people. And boy, like, I hope I've poked all of your buttons a little bit. If not, you know, you need to recommend a few more because Jonah wants to make us. <laughs> Jonah wants to make us all uncomfortable, right? He wants to make us. Uh, really examine our own prejudices, who we think is just outside the scope of God's saving grace. And, and we all have that. We all have people in our lives. We're just like, man, I don't, I'm not talking to those people. I don't want to interact with those people. I don't want anything to do with those people. And living in the city means that you're confronted with an incredible amount of diversity, different people, different relationships, relationships, worldviews, backgrounds, orientations. And, and we got to wrestle with that. I was recently watching a movie on the Jesus Movement. I don't know if you're familiar with that back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, there was this incredible move of God and started in California where all of these hippies just like converted to Christianity. Like, I mean, they went from like sex, drugs, and rock and roll to like, you know, all of a sudden they're joining the church and, um, you know, rock, you know, pretty much revolutionized the church during that period. But it's really interesting to look back at the church of that time who is looking at these hippies and, you know, as they're protesting Vietnam and using copious amounts of drugs. And like, you know, the church of that time was just like, man, these people are beyond the pale. We're not going to deal with these hippies, these revolutionaries. Like, and the church just by and large stiff-armed them and said, we don't want anything to do with them. It's clear God wouldn't want anything to do with these people. I mean, they are just flagrantly violating God's word in every way, shape, or form. And it was tragic to see the church reject so many people that were spiritually hungry, that were needing something. They were looking in all the wrong places for the hope that God only could provide. Uh, But the church missed an opportunity. But a few leaders said, hey, we see spiritual hunger in these people. We want to point them to Jesus. And there was an incredible revival that happened that has still had ripple effects today. The church we say, the music we sing today, all has come out of that incredible movement in the 60s where hippies all of a sudden were taken to the stage and play, you know, the, the organ got taken out and they started bringing in you know, contemporary music and uh, making songs about God's grace and mercy and salvation. And we enjoy that today. Which leads us, I think, to my second point, and the, obviously the first point was the longest point, so we're, <laughs> we're not going to be here all day. But this is kind of, I think the big challenge for us is, is we're the Jonah in this story, and we need to wrestle with our own prejudices, but it also leads us to see a striking contrast between Jonah's hardness of heart and the scandal of the openness of outsiders to the God of Israel. Don't miss this. This is something, if you're just kind of reading through the book, you might totally just be tempted to gloss over. But it's incredible. Both the pagan sailors and the brutal Assyrians are surprisingly open to God. And that is something that we need to write. That that should be a scandal for those of us that are Christians and tempted to kind of live in our own little holy huddle and think, man, nobody outside is really wanting, needing the grace of God, the love of God, uh, to be a part of the family of God, right? This challenges our thinking. Uh, sailors the world over have a reputation for being a little bit of a wild bunch. Right? I don't know if we have any sailors in the room here, uh, but sailors are kind of crazy, right? They have a really hard life out on the sea, and boy, when they get back on land, man, they, they have a reputation for, for partying hard, right? That's, that's the sa- life sailors had, particularly sailors in the ancient world, if you can imagine these guys out on the Mediterranean Sea with none of the modern instruments. I mean, this is some, these were some rough characters. You just have to imagine. 
But here we have a surprisingly religious crew, right? When the storm kicks up, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 5, they cry out to their gods. The captain wakes up Jonah and asks him to pray. He's like, don't you care? We're all going to drown. Why don't you pray to your God? Which is, I mean, just the irony here of this, of this you know, salty sailor is like waking Jonah up, shaking the prophet and going, what are you doing sleeping, man? Pray for us. Uh, when Jonah tells them that he serves the God of heaven who made the land and the sea, they don't scoff. They're like, man, our boat is just getting like, I mean, tossed around. We're going to die they fear God exceedingly, uh, verse 10 tells us, that they were exceedingly afraid. They're not just afraid, they are exceedingly afraid. And even after Jonah tells them to throw them overboard, they're like, no, we're going to try and save you. We're going to try and row to shore, back in verse 13 of chapter 1. And when they do have to throw them overboard, they pray that Jonah's God would forgive them for doing it. So these are some rough sailors, and yet they're praying now to the God of Israel, right? This is God's covenant name here. They're praying to not the gods that they were praying to before. Now they're praying to Jonah's God. And finally, once the sea calms down, they offer a sacrifice and make a vow to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, we don't know what happened to them or where they went from there. Did they go like right back to port and go to Jerusalem and be like, man, whoever that God is, like, we need to know him. His name, we're not sure. We don't get the details. But the narrator is going out of his way to say, there are people on the outside that are so open to this message. It's like God saying to Jonah, you don't think I want to save these people? Watch this. <laughs> I'm gonna, these sailors, man, they're way more open than you are. And then in scene two, when we get to chapter three, it's like these Assyrians, who you think there's no hope for these guys? Like they are beyond the pale. Like they are your enemies. Watch this. <laughs> Watch what I'm going to do. Jonah, you preach this pathetic message of a sermon. And, and then they're just like brokenhearted. They're humble from the least to the greatest. I mean, the king proclaims this massive fast. And it's like, man, we've got to cry out to the Lord. Even our animals are going to cry out to the Lord. It's, it's stunning as you read the account in chapter 3, the extent to which they are willing to go. And more importantly, we see in chapter 3, verse 8, that he called the people, the king of, Assyria, king of, king of the Ninevites here, called the people to turn from their evil ways and the violence that is in their hearts. So this isn't just like a superstitious thing where they're like, oh yeah, we're going to go try to appease the Lord. He says, no, the king called them to turn from their evil ways to repent. Repentance is turning around, going the other way. You are living your life in ways that are destructive, toxic, harmful to yourself and all the people around you. You need to turn from your evil ways and the violence is your hand, which the Syrians were absolutely notorious for, and the king says, we're turning from all of that. We're going to repent. And verse 10 validates this. It says, the Lord saw that they had turned from their evil ways. Like, that's shocking, right? This is the most violent, you know, one of the worst empires. I'm known for its cruelty. But here's a king and here's a people in this generation that humble their hearts, turn from their evil ways, and they experience the grace and mercy of God. It's remarkable how responsive these outsiders are. And I think we need that reminder again today. I know I do, right? It's so easy for us to kind of be in our little holy huddle here. We get together on Sunday morning with all of our wonderful church people that love Jesus. And, you know, we look at the culture around us and go, oh my gosh, look at all the terrible things that are happening out there. And we can get defensive and we can miss all the spiritually hungry people around us. Jesus told us that the harvest is plentiful there's so many people that are open. It's just the laborers that are few. And I'm not saying that, like, if you share the gospel, like, everyone is going to be receptive, right? You know, you, you may know from personal experience, may have had some negative experiences where people were less than excited to be, have the gospel shared with them. 
But it's incredibly easy for us, right, to write lost people off. Um, but the sovereignty of God in salvation means that no one is beyond his reach. And so I'm hoping Jonah would help us see these people with new eyes. As we look at a new generation filled with unchurched people, those who are spiritual but not religious, the nuns, right, people with no religious affiliation, people from other religions, um, we will see a generation that's hungry for the real thing. I hope we would have eyes to see in our generation that people are hungry, right? They may be rejecting the church they grew up in, um, cultural Christianity, uh, Christianity with no power, where the Spirit of God is not at work. Um, but people are hungry for the real thing. And it's not just the unchurched. As we encounter the dechurched, um, will we see these people as just hopelessly inoculated to the gospel or people who've been burned, right, by the church and need to be exposed to the real thing in the great dechurching book and podcast, which is a great, great just insights into the, into the world we're living in. Jim Davis and Michael Graham conducted the largest peer-reviewed study on, de-church, on the dechurching phenomenon in America today. And they said that 40 million Christians have walked away from the church over the last 25 years. But get this, 51% said they'd either willing or somewhat willing to go back to church, especially if a friend invited them. It's amazing how many people are open to the church, even people that walk away. When we think of people that walk away from church, the de-church, we think of those that are deconstructed, like don't believe any of it anymore, are just like, man, militantly opposed to the authority of Scripture, uh, think the Bible's regressive socially and backwards. Um, but 51% of those 40 million people that walked away, they're just looking for somebody to invite them back, right? I just talked to a couple yesterday. He was like, yeah, you know, COVID, we kind of dropped out, but we really would love to get back involved with a church body, with a church community. There are people out there like that. Don't give up on your friends, your coworkers, people. You might be surprised at who would be receptive to uh, the message of uh, the gospel. So our narrator deliberately contrasts Jonah's hardness of heart the outsider's openness of heart, but our narrator has saved the best and most striking contrast to last here. And so I want to look at the scandal of God's heart for the nations. From the very opening line of this book, God has a mission of mercy for the city of Nineveh. That is why God sends Jonah there in the first place. It's his heart for that city that stops Jonah in his tracks, dramatically redirects him back on mission. And it's God's heart for this city that is ultimately Jonah's greatest complaint at the climax of the book. After Nineveh repented, right? We know, God, that you're so merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, right? Jonah is angry about God's mercy. He's angry that God would do this, but we see God's heart revealed in beautiful ways. Jonah's angry about God's mercy, which has been the centerpiece of God's character throughout Israel's history, starting all the way back in Exodus 34, 5 through 7, which Jonah's pretty much quoting there in chapter 4, 1 through 2. Jonah is all about God's justice, but he's angry at his mercy. How can God let this evil empire off the hook? Evil's en- Israel's enemies clearly don't deserve God's mercy. And while God doesn't answer the question of God's justice, he does continue to pursue Jonah's heart with a plant, which we don't have time to get into, and a plea that Jonah would share God's pity for this great city. While we're left to wonder whether Jonah will share God's heart for the nations at the end of the story, we aren't left to wonder about God's commitment to mercy and justice for the nations. God is not content with a mission of mercy only to the Ninevites, so he sent a greater Jonah on a greater mission. 
Uh, 1 John 4.14 tells us that we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Unlike Jonah, Jesus didn't run from this call, but left the comforts of heaven, took on flesh and blood, entered into our broken world. He is familiar with our suffering and our sorrows and the pain we experience. And where Jonah tried to flee from the presence of the Lord, Jesus radiated the presence of the Lord wherever he went. He was God in the flesh. Where Jonah was thrown into the raging sea and rescued, by a great fish, Jesus would be thrown overboard into the much greater storm of God's wrath for our sins. And this time, there would be no rescue. He would pay the penalty uh, for our sins to establish God's justice and extend his mercy to us. And instead of three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, Jesus would be buried for three days and three nights in a tomb. Jesus called this the sign of Jonah and mentions it in Matthew 12, 40. I think we have it up on the screen. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But it doesn't end there, right? Jesus (laughs) rose again to the Father's right hand where he is seated on his throne and advancing his kingdom. Instead of complaining about God's mercy, Jesus commissioned his disciples to tell the whole world about it, right? God's justice has been satisfied and his mercy has been secured through the cross. We can say without hesitation that Jesus is the better Jonah. So what would it look like this week to live with the message of Jonah burning in our hearts, right? I'm praying that this book would help us see outsiders and enemies differently, that we wouldn't make assumptions about who is open to the gospel and who wouldn't be. Instead of being judgmental, we would be sensitive to people around us who are spiritually hungry, even if that hunger is very misdirected. And we see that they're going in all the wrong directions. I'm praying that we would live not in fear, but remember that salvation belongs to the Lord, that he is absolutely sovereign in salvation. I'm praying that there would, we would see testimonies coming out of this sermon of unlikely people coming to faith because Jesus is still saving people today. I, I love the, the Jesus movement, how, how uh, in the movie that I was watching, at the end of that movie, you see all of these you know, people that are coming out of that drug culture, sex, drugs, rock and roll. At the end, there's this beautiful scene. They're all at the beach. They're at Pirate's Cove here. It's like Laguna Beach, California. I think I have a picture of this thing. And there are just thousands and thousands of people just gathering to be baptized. And it's so powerful because these are the people that everyone in the church at that time thought, there's no way God could do this in our time. Like, there's no way these people would turn to the true and living God. And I, I just want to leave you with an image there of these are the people, right, 60, uh, when we look back and go, of course, God had a plan for the hippies and he was going to save them. But we look around us today, we look at our friends, man, we look at our contemporaries, we look at our neighbors, we look at our coworkers and we go, man, no way, no way God could do that again. And, and my part and my prayer is that we would say, God, do it again in our time. Do it again in our community. Would you break beyond the bounds of our prejudices and our small view of what you might do in ways of saving people? Would we just be reminded, we'd be a church, right, that recognizes that salvation belongs to the Lord and we can live in that. I've often said along the way that the church is, this is something key to that revival too, the church is a hospital 
for sinners. It's not a museum for saying it's where people that are broken and struggling in the world, they come uh, like an emergency room. They come for triage. They come for care. They come to experience the grace of God and mercy of God. And my prayer is that our church would be a place where people could come and experience that grace. And I'm praying that we would see a similar revival and renewal in our time, that each one of us would be able to see it and be a part of that today. So let's pray. Maybe that God would move and break beyond the categories, the boxes we might put him in. And uh, yeah, yeah, let's pray.